in Luke chapter 18, starting from verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, they called it the global financial crisis. That was the term that was coined back in 2008 when it all began. And they're saying it's the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression of 1930. Now, I don't really understand economics, so I'm not really in a position to be able to make any decisions on these things. But Ben Bernanke, who was the Federal Reserve Chairman in the United States at the time, he said that it is worse than the Great Depression of the 1930s. In the US, they've effectively had 0% interest rates for, the, for quite a number of years in order to try and stimulate the economy. And it's only been in the last few months that they've actually raised those interest rates. It's been a constant news topic for pretty much eight years now. Almost every night on the news, we hear something about the continuing impact of this global financial crisis. Well, we're pretty regularly encouraged to think about money, aren't we? I mean, every night there's that financial update on the news where they tell you what's happened with the stock exchange and how much the Aussie dollar is now worth and we're all supposed to nod knowingly as we watch these figures scroll across the screen. But we also see ads on TV for credit cards or for Nimble who'll lend you those small amounts of money for immediate things that you've got to do like fixing your car. There are regular ads for superannuation. Money is a big topic for us. We're thinking about it quite regularly. We're being encouraged to think about it quite regularly. So what I want to do over today and next Sunday is have a think about this topic of money and how we should view things as Christians. We need to make sure that our views on money, like our views on all areas of life, are shaped by not the prevailing mood of our society, but by our Lord and Saviour, by what the Bible has to say on this topic. So what we're going to start with this morning is the story of the rich young ruler. And if you've got your Bible open there at Luke chapter 18, that would be a good place for it to be. But I also want to try and scan across some of the other things that the Bible has to say. But let's start with Luke chapter 18. This man, a young man, comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a very simple question. 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus runs this man through the commandments, but don't misunderstand what Jesus is doing here. He's not suggesting for a moment that that's what you need to do to enter eternal life. I think Jesus is really just wanting to paint a picture. He's wanting to show what this guy is like, what his character is. Because the fact is, he was a very good, upright, respectable person. He was a law-abiding young man. He was a good man. Now, please note, this man did not come to Jesus pleading his own righteousness as though he thought that's what he needed to do to gain eternal life. He's responding to the question that Jesus asked him. You know, the commandments, Jesus said. But when it comes to, to, uh, to salvation, it's not about obedience to the law. It's not about our personal righteousness. It's not about what we have done. If it was, then this man wouldn't have bothered coming to Jesus in the first place. He would have felt quite confident about his law-keeping abilities, the fact that he'd been willing and able to do the right thing. But he seems to be aware that there's something, something about Jesus, something about his message that makes him realise that this is the man that I need to speak to if I want to know about eternal life. So he asks Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after running him through the commandments, Jesus hits him with this. You'll see it there if you've got your Bible open, verse number 22. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, the come, follow me part, that's not new. Jesus has already said that to quite a number of people. That's what he said to his disciples when he called them to come and follow him. That part's not new. But the idea of selling everything and giving it to the poor, well, to the best of my knowledge, this is the only time that Jesus ever asked anyone to do that. This is not a request that he makes of every single person. This was a very specific request in very specific circumstances to a very specific person. I suppose the disciples did something kind of like that. Um, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they both walked away from the family fishing business when Jesus called them to follow him. But they obviously didn't sell everything because we know that after Jesus' death, they actually returned to the family business. But while they may not do exactly what Jesus says here about selling everything, they were willing to walk away from everything in order to follow Jesus. But the crunch in the story comes in verse 23. Look at what it says. When he, that is the rich young man, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. There's an expression that gets used in the Bible that kind of sums up a lot of what the Bible has to say about money. It's an expression that Paul uses when he writes to the Colossian church. He says, greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. I mean, Jesus effectively said the same thing when he said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. See, that was the rich young ruler's dilemma. Jesus says, you've got to make a choice. Trust me. Or trust your money. Now again, we need to be clear that Jesus doesn't make this demand of every single person. 
It's a specific direction to this specific person for a specific reason. Jesus knew that this man would choose his money rather than choosing Jesus. But at another level, I suppose it is the demand that Jesus makes of every single one of us, isn't it? If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to, to make Jesus your king, your lord, the boss of your life, well, everything needs to come under his authority. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say to yourself, well, this part of my life, Sunday mornings, Jesus can have that. Uh, Jesus can have $5 in the plate. Or you don't get to pick and choose which parts of your life you give to Jesus. You surrender everything to him when you make him the Lord of your life. If you acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord, then you serve him with your life. You serve him with your words. You serve him with your actions. And you serve him with your money. But back to the story of the rich young ruler. Just so the disciples can fully grasp the point, Jesus goes on to say this in verse number 24. Jesus looked at him, that is the rich young ruler, and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples would have been gobsmacked by that. Like everyone else in their day, they would have thought that being rich meant that you were blessed by God. And Jesus seems to be spinning it around and saying, riches, money can actually be a hindrance to entering into the kingdom. He says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine how much you would have to lick a camel's tail to thread it through that needle? I mean, you'd be there all day, wouldn't you? Just getting the tail started through the needle. But we need to tread carefully here. Jesus is not saying that rich people can't be saved. Go to the beginning of the next chapter of Luke's Gospel and we read about a man who is a ruler. He's a ruler of the tax collectors, but he's actually a chief ruler of the tax collectors who is very rich and he comes to faith. So Jesus is not saying rich people can't be saved. That's not the point at all. Jesus wants to stress in this passage that salvation doesn't happen by what you do. It happens by what God does for you. You're not strong enough, as we saw in the cartoon, but we know that God is. The point that Jesus is making is that rich people will often feel that they have less reason to trust God. I remember a friend of mine was working in a church on the northern beaches and uh, the wife of a very wealthy businessman in Sydney was coming along to the church and she asked my friend to go and have dinner with them and to talk to her husband about Christian things. They sat on the balcony of their home looking out over the beach and the sunset and the beautiful evening and this businessman said to my friend, what could God possibly give me that I couldn't go out and buy right now if I wanted it? And that's what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? He's saying that's what the hindrance is of riches. People can look to money for security, for fulfilment, for meaning, even for a future. And money will easily take the place of God in your life if you let it. Your life can be shaped by money and not God. Your life can be guided by money and not God. 
the rich young ruler walks away sad because when he was faced with a choice, he chose his money rather than eternal life. Let's take a break for a moment. Let's go and have a look at some of the things that the, that the Old Testament says. Because the Old Testament, well, the whole of the Bible, in fact, talks a lot about money. And there's a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're strongly encouraged in our society to believe that money will fix our problems, that it will solve things for us. That if we have more money, then our lives will be easier and better. Uh, advertising campaigns for the lotteries are always a great way of seeing how our society views money. Powerball. What's the motto for Powerball? Oh, come on, you've watched enough television. What is it? Spend the rest of your life, or you could spend the rest of your life. It's suggesting that if you have, if you win Powerball, if you win $20 million on Powerball, you can just live the life, live your life spending as much as you want for the rest of your life. Instant scratchies. Thank you, Lyndall. Scratch me happy. Have you bought a few recently? Have you? No? Okay. Scratch me happy. That if I win this money, then I'll be happy. I won't be happy if I don't win it. But that's the suggestion, isn't it? That money can fix my problems, that it can make me happy. But Solomon, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, wants to say, well, that's actually not true. Money doesn't bring happiness and contentment. I remember reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald some time ago and I I wished I'd got a copy of it. Uh, It was a front page article and it was a a measure of how people felt about their income. And the article was saying that they'd interviewed, they'd they'd surveyed a couple of thousand people to find out how they felt about their level of income. And all of them across the board, the consensus was... They felt they'd be happy if they had just 15% more than what they currently have. But the people who already have 15% more, well, they think they need 15% more as well. And it seems to be the problem in our society, doesn't it? Now, that's what Solomon says. Uh, This comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He says, whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. I remember David Cook, who's the uh, moderator of the Presbyterian Church, uh, telling a story that kind of sums this up. David does quite a lot of overseas travel, speaking at things, and he said he always used to look up into business class and wished that he could be sitting up there because he was always back in in, uh, economy class. He always thought it would be great to be up there. The seats are nicer, the food's better, there's more leg room. Um, And one time he got bumped up into business class from his economy class seat. And he said the worst part about sitting in business class is that you can see up into first class. (laughs) See, if you make money your goal, you're never going to be satisfied. You'll never be happy. Solomon says more money doesn't make your life happy. In fact, it can have quite the opposite effect. This is what Solomon says. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of the labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of of a rich man permits him no sleep. With money comes worries. With increased wealth comes increased responsibilities. With wealth comes the ongoing concern of how to use it wisely. 
But we need to be careful because the, the Bible's not completely negative about money. In fact, I think I want to say the Bible's actually rather neutral about money itself. Uh, people often misquote the Bible by saying that money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't actually say that. What it says in 1 Timothy is this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. See, the Bible isn't critical of money. The Bible is critical of your attitude towards money. The Bible says the problem's not money, it's the attitude that you may have towards it that can be the problem. The love of money, the worship of money, is a serious problem. Greed is idolatry. In fact, the Bible wants to present us with the idea that there are good ways for us to use money. And at the risk of stating the glaringly obvious, money is a really good way of alleviating poverty. Now, that might kind of sound self-evident, but this is what Paul says. It's a long quote, but, but stick with me. It's worth reading. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Did you notice that it doesn't say command those who are rich to give away everything to the poor? It doesn't say that. It says those who are rich need to recognise what it is that they've got and they need to use it wisely. They need to look around. I know of a few businessmen here in Sydney, a couple of them who are involved in finances and another person who is involved in medical things, who've been extraordinarily generous with the money that they've got. Uh, One guy in particular who gives away millions of dollars every year. He knows that God has given him an ability to make money in the business that he's in and he knows that he has a great responsibility to use it wisely and to use it well. The Bible says we need to take care of our family with our money. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. That's something we've seen uh, in our visits to Zimbabwe. Uh, The way that in the really tough times in Zimbabwe, 2008, 2009, uh, the churches pulled together. They cared for each other. They supported each other. They looked after each other. There were days when people went without food, but people shared. And the Christians over there said that that was actually a strengthening time for the church over there. Paul says this as well, which is an interesting thing. Uh, if, to, if, if for a, someone who's been a thief who becomes a Christian, he who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. God has a great concern for those in need, for the powerless, for the voiceless in our society. Back in New Testament times, it was the widows and the orphans. And we need to always remember that our priority as a church is the gospel. 
We are here to share the good news of Jesus, to give people the thing that can make them truly rich, that message of eternal life through Jesus. But we also need to be totally convinced that God wants us to care for those in need. And as those who've been richly blessed with what we have, we have a greater responsibility to do that, to look after the poor and the powerless, to care for the most needy people in our world. And money is a really handy way of alleviating poverty. But I want to finish on a positive note. Uh, money talks can often make you feel guilty about how much you've got or how little you're giving away, and I don't want to do that. Because I know I'm not, I don't know what your financial situation is. I don't know what your money situation is like, and you really don't know what mine's like either. I'm sure that there are some here who financially are doing it rather tough compared to others. And there would be some here within our church who financially speaking are quite well off. And probably every one of us would think if we just had 15% more, then we'd be perfectly comfortable. But no matter what your situation is, everyone needs to think about how it is that they use their money and think about how you're using it in serving God. I saw a woman on a current affair a few years ago. I've told this story before probably. But uh, she was talking about how poor she was and how difficult what she, things were for her. The gist of the story was that the government weren't doing enough to help her. And the evidence of how tough she was doing it was that she couldn't even afford a cot for her baby to sleep in. And then she went on to say, in fact, things are so bad that the baby has to sleep in the box that the DVD player came in. Now, I'm wondering if I'm the only one who's able to join the dots there. We live in a wealthy country and we never we need to make sure that we never forget that. But let me finish with some practical examples. I know a family who decided that for every child that they had, they would sponsor a child with compassion. They have four children, so they sponsored four, compassion, uh, four children through the Compassion Sponsorship Program. I know of another family where the adults no longer give each other Christmas presents but give the equivalent amount of money that they would have spent on Christmas presents and send that to Tier Australia for the work that they do. I know of a family where every time they make a, what they would consider to be a purchase of a luxury item, they give away the same amount of money to those people in need or to the work of the gospel. They want to know that for the luxuries that they enjoy... They're giving away an equal amount to do something good elsewhere. We need to keep thinking about our attitudes towards money and we need to do it regularly. It's not something that you just do once and then it's all sorted. Your circumstances will change throughout your life and it's an important thing to just keep thinking about how it is that you're using what you have. But above all, we need to make sure that that our attitudes towards our money are shaped by God's values. We need to share his heart for the poor and the powerless and the needy and we need to act on that concern.